This episode of The Pathway is brought to you by iTalkI. What is iTalkI? It's an online language learning platform which connects language learners and teachers through video chat. The site allows students to find online teachers. I'm currently one of them. I am learning. I'm not a teacher. I'm so far from a teacher. I am one of the students. <laughs> I am learning Chinese at the moment and am absolutely loving it and so grateful to have found this platform. All you need to do to get $10 in free credit is copy the link in this podcast. Once you register through that unique link, you're immediately transported. You complete your first lesson. You got $10, buddy. I would love to hear if anyone wants to learn a language, reach out to me. I have found this platform incredible. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions about it. Just reach out. All right, podcast time. Hello and welcome to The Pathway. My name is Tim Deeks, and in this podcast, we dive deep into the lives of interesting characters from a wide range of backgrounds. No matter if the guest is a leader in business, sport, media, or politics, everyone has a pathway through life. And it is my ambition that through each guest's unique story, you'll be able to take something away to put into action on your own path. So let's start walking. My guest today is Michael Raiden. He's a man who's battled through various challenges, including mental health, drug addiction, and incarceration. Michael is bravely sharing his story with the aim to help others who are facing similar challenging times. To detail his journey, welcome, Michael. Hey, nice to, nice to be here. Uh, it's so great to have you on, and I uh, really appreciate, you know, during our conversations, how open and honest, and I'm sure that's going to come out today, but, you know, it's really interesting. You were actually really hard to write an intro for. And I mean that in a really positive way, that there's so many complexities to your journey. I was wondering if you give us a brief description. Who is Michael Raiden? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll try to keep it brief. Look, I grew up in a, in a pretty regular family, uh, or what I thought was regular until years and years later. And then I realized actually I was very lucky in terms of I, you know, both my parents were happily married, uh, grew up with three brothers, one older, two younger. And whilst we weren't rich or, you know, well off or anything like that, n none of the boys, my brothers and I, I mean, uh, we, we didn't want for anything. We always had food on the table. We, you know, went on uh, family weekends to different places like Phillip Island and Juan Staggy and uh, a few, few others around there, just beautiful places. You know, growing up was was great and it was, it was real. I was really lucky, you know. Everything that I've learned through my journey taught me that my upbringing was. I was very lucky to experience my upbringing, and I, and I have a, a mind full of wonderful memories growing up. Uh, but you know, th there are other other things that were happening during the time of me growing up, such as suffering mental illness. And you know, back then, I didn't uh, identify it as mental illness or anything like that. I just thought I was weird and stupid, but in, in answering your question, Tim, who is Michael Raiden? I would say I am somebody who has learned a great deal of what not to do in life if you want to progress. And I also know, and, and look, some of that is my fault and my, my choices and my decisions. A lot of that were my decisions. But some of it was, was things that I couldn't, Plan for and 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 certainly didn't didn't know I, I was experiencing at the time such as things like mental illness. 
So now, and the question, who is Michael? You know, it's it's a, it's a good one because I think Michael changes a lot. You know, and some days I wake up and I conquer my mind, and I go out and I I strive to use my experiences in order to benefit others, particularly you know that that younger generation, uh, but anybody really, but. Some days I wake up and it conquers me, you know, and my history conquers me and, and my, my mind conquers me. And so it is a very, very, it's a question that I could answer in a hundred different ways. <laughs> but I would say today, Michael is just somebody who is very fortunate to be alive, very fortunate to have the family he has, and very fortunate to have learned the lessons I have learned only if. I can use them correctly in order to help benefit other people's lives. Otherwise, it was just a waste and, and, a, and a couple of decades of trauma for nothing. What kind of kid were you growing up? Very, very outgoing, extrovert, all the way, sporty, loved sport. Basketball was my thing. And uh, although I'd play any sport because I just like to move around, but basketball was definitely my thing. But I was a very sad kid as well. Only. You wouldn't know that. No one would would know that. But I, I was sad because I was I was suffering. What were the worries when you were younger? Probably about grade three, grade four, so maybe nine or ten or something. I, I started to experience what, what what we all know is anxiety, but really, really badly. And I, I mean, now I know that there's a normal level of anxiety that that people experience, and that's fine. But I was experiencing full blown panic attacks. For, uh, over very, very small issues, you know. So, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is when I was um, when I was at school and I was waiting for mum mum to pick me up and she wasn't there or she was late or something and I would just go into a full-blown panic attack because my, my brain was telling me that, that she, she was dead. She's not there, so she's got to be dead. And then I was behaving as a young boy who had just lost his mum until she would arrive and then I would snap back into normality and I would, wouldn't really think anything of it except, you know, there's that kind of like emotional intelligence that we have and, and I definitely felt like something wasn't right. And so even though I was a very happy outgoing extrovert who loved to play basketball and, you know, was very popular and had a lot of friends, I was terribly sad and lonely because I didn't see any of my other friends exhibiting any sort of, symptoms of what I was feeling so therefore that taught me that they weren't they weren't feeling what I was feeling and then I didn't see any of my brothers exhibiting anything like that as well so I felt alone and that made me sad did you ever discover where that came from was it genetics was it just in your family lineage we Look, we're told all sorts of different things, man. I've seen a lot of different medical, mental professionals, uh, a lot. And a couple of them kind of corroborated each other's stories by saying that I, it was a chemical imbalance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't something like a trauma moment that happened or anything. Um, they did say that I, I would have a chemical imbalance and that, and that my brain would kind of be producing something a little bit too much or a little bit less or, or whatever. I don't know if that means genetics or I don't know if I was the first. I don't know. But 
I do remember being told that there would be no amount of talking throughout my life that would ever help me uh, manage or see this through this this condition. What happened to you when you're in those moments? From if if I was on the other side of the street at school, looking looking at you while you're going through one of these panic attacks, as someone that doesn't suffer from from this, what happens? You probably just see a lot of pacing. You, well, you definitely see a lot of pacing. I would pace back and forth, up and down. I would be short of breath to the point of having to sit down because I thought I might faint. And in fact, that happened a lot. I, I used to sit down a lot when this was happening because I felt like I was going to faint. And I suppose if you were across the street, you may not have seen this, but up close, you you know, take one look at my face, and you would you would think that someone in my family has just died. That's how, that's how you would uh, describe me if you didn't know me and you saw me going through one of these panic attacks. You would honestly think I've just lost a family member. When was the first moment that you kind of raised that, oh my God, this is, this is an issue. This is really affecting my day-to-day life. I never admitted that. I never, ever admitted this is affecting my day-to-day life. Probably not until I was in prison. I, just because I... I hid it, I lied about it, I masked it, and then as I grew up, I used other things to hide behind, which were drugs, you know? So I never, even going through mental health professionals and having all sorts of uh, different psychiatrists and psychologists talk to me, I never kind of submitted to the fact that, A, I am suffering from something that I cannot control, and B, that it is having a detrimental effect on my life. I knew that, of course, I knew that in my mind, but never did I did I say that to anybody. Do you remember your first encounter with drugs? Yeah, I do. What? 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 Uh, well, I mean, okay, so marijuana was uh, out the back of my house with uh, my older brother and his friends. Just had a couple of drags of a joint, and didn't you know wasn't wasn't anything too too serious, but my first encounter with something worse than marijuana was speed and I was 17 years old and I was uh, in the in the toilet cubicle of my high school in year 12 and what was what was the catalyst for you wanting to, to uh, do this curiosity man that's it it was just curiosity you know I, I used to tell these uh, these kids at school, at, at, not school, these school kids at, in prison when I was doing the schools program, uh, you know, kids would come in with their teachers, they'd sit down and, and a panel of inmates would, would talk to them. And I used to tell them, you know, I'm not one of these people that was trying to escape his reality. That's not why I first tried drugs. I definitely used them to escape afterwards, but I didn't first try drugs because I was escaping my reality. You know, I wasn't being abused at home. I wasn't anything like that. I... I just, I just gave into curiosity. I said no a bunch of times beforehand to different people when they would offer. And this particular day, I just thought, why not? It's going to sound like a really naive question, but did you enjoy it? Absolutely. Yep, I did. Because it completely blew my anxiety away for that moment. And it felt good. I mean, it's, it's drugs, you know. And, and whilst drugs have a, a scary element to them because depending on what drug it is you know they can kind of have you lose control of 
your senses and your decision making and just your overall experience of the world, they feel good. You know, they, I mean, they cover the pleasure receptor, depending on what drug we're talking, but, you know, speed certainly has an element of, of euphoria. And so, yeah, it did, it did feel good. But the most dangerous thing I noticed was the next day, I didn't wake up in a gutter. I was just at home. And I, and, and I thought, well, what are all these so-called grown-ups talking about when they're telling me that you can get addicted the first time and all it takes is once, you know? And I thought, I don't know what they're bloody talking about. And so I tried it again. <laughs> and that's, you know, reflecting on it now, that's how I, I, uh, I look at it is that, ah, maybe that's what they meant when they said all it takes is once because I didn't wake up in a gutter. I, I didn't use for the first time and then steal money from mum or getting into fights over drugs or anything like that. I just used it. It was enjoyable. I didn't sleep much that night. Woke up the next day. Felt a little bit crap, like like a hangover type of thing, but a little bit worse. And that was it. Reflecting on your pathway, and I appreciate how incredibly honest you are about your pathway. What was the fork in the road moment for you where it started to go really bad? That, what I just described, that day in the toilet. Because before that, I, I had been engaging in a bit of violence here and there. Actually, I think I've had a couple of different forks. I think we all have different forks. I don't think there's just one fork mm. because, you know, there was definitely a fork much younger when I was about 12 years old when I got beaten up at school and I made this kind of subconscious decision. Well, it wasn't even subconscious. It was pretty bloody conscious. The decision that I didn't want that to happen again. And I thought, oh, you know, look at me. I'm all beaten up and humiliated uh how, how do i make sure that never happens again well i guess you got to get good at fighting and so that's exactly what i did and then fast forward to when i'm 17 five years later i've had a whole lot of experience in violence and now i throw drugs into the mix so this is the second fork the drugs and that just propelled me oh, in the most vicious way into a disgusting world uh, filled with lost, predominantly young men and women who were also suffering from very similar things I was suffering from, like addiction and, and mental ill health. When you're in that state, do you begin to surround yourself with you know, like-minded people? Well, you do. And the reason for that is, well, it's multifaceted. You, you do because you are the word you're ashamed of showing yourself to to your friends who really care about you who aren't engaging in drugs and violence you withdraw from your family because you know you're, you're hiding it from them uh but also you go where the drugs are you know and the drugs are predominantly around like-minded people i mean there are some people who i used to call them uh what did i used to call them Fun functioning drug addicts where they could hold down a nine to five job or even a career while using heavily, but they're not, there's not many of them. And, and the rest of us just, uh, just kind of hopped around from house to house, people to people, friendship group to friendship group. I never really belonged to any friendship group. I just, I just kind of, uh, failed through them all. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, you mentioned um, prison. How did you go from being that boy in the in the toilet cubicle doing drugs? Obviously, that you know spiraled a little bit, but then ending up in prison. Well, the cocktail of mental ill health, drug addiction, which you know I'll be very clear, uh, evolved into a full blown addiction of ice and cocaine, and then also adding in the the violent aspect of it as well. You know, so you've got your drug addicts who aren't violent at all. So that removes that aspect of it. And even though they will come across violence at some point in their life, because that world unavoidably has it, they don't actively engage in it. Okay. So you've got that type of drug addict. And then you've got me uh, and, and the people like me who are drug addicts who did, who, who used to, well, I speak myself, I used to enjoy engaging in violence and mentally ill as well. So, I mean, it was only a matter of time because, you know, the, the fight got worse and worse and, you know, first it was punches thrown and then there was different weapons produced and then it was kind of bigger and badder people up against me and me up against them and friendship groups having massive feuds and, you know, it was, it was, it, it was inevitable. It really was inevitable. Um, but I guess the, the way I, I went from, a 17-year-old boy using drugs in the, in the school toilet to being a 26-year-old boy incarcerated for three and a half years was I just didn't stop. You know, I, I allowed it to progress and I didn't heed the warnings that were so often given to me by friends and family. Uh, and even sometimes when I looked at myself in the mirror, you know, I geez, there were some times I looked at myself in the mirror and just thought, what's happening to you? But instead of uh, addressing it, I hid from it behind smoke and daggers of drugs. The people along the your own path, and, I, and I've heard others talk about how incredible your mum is and, and the role that mm. she played. What role did the people around you play during this journey? Well... There were many. So mum and dad both played vital roles and they started off quite similar, but then they kind of shifted. So dad became the uh, the support. He would support me in anything I did and he would always be there to, to pull me out of trouble. And he also would uh, basically do anything to... To, if he thought it was going to benefit my life. But a lot of that was, I guess, enabling my condition as well, my, my addiction as well. And whereas mum could take no more uh, at a certain point and she basically shut me out of her life because for her own safety as well. Not that I was ever, or you know, not that I ever attacked her, but... I brought home some pretty dangerous people to the house, you know, and, and, and I mean, our house got shot at. We, my mum my and dad and brothers were face to face with pretty heavy criminals day in, day out. I had all sorts of guns and drugs come through my house on a daily basis and they, they, they handled it very differently and they grew apart. They, mum, couldn't handle a lot of what I was doing and just wanted me out. Dad didn't really want me out and he wanted to kind of keep an eye on me so he could look after me. 
uh, but you know who's right who who which decision is right you don't know there's no there's no rule book on on how no. to treat your son or daughter who is suffering mental illness drug addiction and now petty crime and and I use the word petty because yeah, that's all it was it was just petty petty crime it was you know not that I'm glorifying organized crime but it was definitely petty and nothing close to knowing what the hell I was doing. You just don't fit the mold of what anyone, I mean, whether there is a mold, I don't even know if there is a mold of, of someone mm. that finds themselves in these positions. I mean, it could happen to almost anyone. I guess that's the, the relevance to your story, but you know, fast forward, you, you were in prison. I wondered if you could describe what was that experience like for you? Oh, I mean, the first, few weeks were pretty awful because I was locked in a in a in a cell underneath the magistrate's court and that place is just absolutely abhorrent <laughs> you you don't get any sunlight when you're down there you, the food that they give you barely has any nutritional value and uh, you know well, whether you're guilty or innocent, you're detained. And so I, I was guilty, but I was still waiting to be to be convicted. So, And yet I was treated like, uh, you know, I had just murdered 40 people. And I had no contact with family or anybody like that because you're just not allowed. And I didn't receive any medication. And, and so I was... When I when I was detained, I I was on a heavy amount of prescription medication as well as illicit drugs. And the thing about prescription medication, particularly benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium, mm. uh, two two drugs of which I was very heavily addicted to, and I had to stop cold turkey. And so that resulted in me having a seizure in my cell, uh, which. <laughs> Further was further resulted in me um, being accused of faking a seizure, and then thrown into a segregation area uh, so that I didn't play up again, quote unquote. And that resulted in me attempting to kill myself. And and I did attempt, uh, I attempted to end my life. Now I didn't have anything really to do that with. So I got creative, but I, I, I don't think I'll share that because I don't want to, you know, no, sure. inadvertently no, no, teach fine. anybody anything. Um, but, but I, and then, and then some officers saw me uh, when I was doing this and they grabbed me and they threw me into a final segregation area that was also padded that also left me naked with a light on 24 hours of the day uh, with one small window in the room that fit where the door was and a blanket that you couldn't tear so that I couldn't use it to hurt myself. And so that was my introduction to prison the first few weeks. Uh, after that, I went to a remand centre, which was a little bit better. And uh, in terms of, you know, I got to see sun. <laughs> uh, and after that, I went to a much larger remand centre and this is where I made a pretty incredible discovery and I'll never forget it. I was on the phone to dad 
so you, you can call out from prison what once you get your uh, family accepted onto the phone list, which is a pretty long and uh, painstaking process, depending on how much what mood the officers are in. And once I spoke to Dad, I said to him, he said, how are you? Is everything okay? Because we hadn't spoken for a while because you get transported in these tiny little upright coffin cage things. And uh, I said to him, I said to him, mate, you know, I'm looking around and I'm standing on Mustard the other day because you, you get counted five times a day. You stand in front of your prison cell, in front of your door, and you stand quiet and you get counted. Uh, and I said, Dad, this this place is filled with, with people just like me. I said, I was on Mustard the other day and, I, and I'm looking around. And I said, I looked up, I looked down, I looked left, I looked right. And all I'm seeing is bloody people like me, just young men. I said, where are the uh, career criminals? Where are the gang members? You know, where are all the, the where are all these people that I, I've heard so much about on the news and on the television that prisons filled with awful monsters that you know should never have their have their freedom again? And yes, I agree. Prison is, and, and I experience prison is made up of a very small portion of people who are wicked to the core, but that's a very small portion. You know, that's tiny. That's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not what prison's made up of and it shouldn't even be mentioned in terms of if you're trying to explain prison because I experienced something that amazed me, which was that a maximum security prison centre, remand centre, was made up of maybe 85, 86% people that were just like me. Young, confused, lost men who entered the system uh, by way of drugs or, or mental illness or both. And that's what I thought. You know, the one thing that you, you mentioned that I only just realized is, you know, so much is focused on the addict themselves, but mm. few recognize the impact that it would have had on your family i mean you know talk about torture not speaking to your son for multiple weeks would would have been torture yeah it would have and you know like i hadn't done enough for them right <laughs> i um yeah I, I i often say to people who who i talk to about my experiences i often say that i unwrap the, you know, some really, really intense, purified torture and, uh, and torment and, and trauma, basically. That's the word, trauma. Because, you know, a family shouldn't have to see their son or daughter or anyone, brother, sister, painfully deteriorate in the way I did. And, and at every point of uh, attempted assistance that they would try to give me, I would basically just metaphorically spit in their face. And uh, and then I, I would introduce them to all sorts of levels of uh, trauma through violence, you know, so people rocking up at my house trying to kill me and me coming home with blood all over me, 
me going to hospital from, you know, all sorts of violent things, me being shot, and then me, you know, eventually going to prison and and then in prison. <laughs> so it's like it doesn't end there because, you know, people that go to jail realise that it's not, it's a prison sentence isn't just the person in prison who is suffering, you know. Their family, our families are also doing a prison sentence. It's just out in the community and, and, it, and that prison sentence consists of worry, concern about our well-being, not knowing when they're going to speak to us again. Uh, you know, I, I would go silent for weeks and weeks because I would either be, you know, in segregation or the prison would be locked down or I would just be locked down or the unit would be locked down or something, you know, and and it's just a guessing game. And, you know, you can call the prison all you want, but, you know, likelihood is they're not going to tell you anything uh, because that falls under security issues. So they won't tell you anything because of security issues. I learned a lot about the the trauma that I uh, inflicted on my family just by entering the prison system, not even not even including everything I did prior. You know, from the dark of the dark, there there is so much positive to your story. You made a what I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, a conscious decision to just not accept this path, and you have done a complete 180. And you, from people that have, have spoken about you off, off air, have said that you were a model prisoner. What was the shift mentally for you to go, I'm not having this. This is not how my life is going to go. What was that moment? Uh, it, was, it was actually a moment, actually. It was a very specific moment. I, I, um, I was in, where was I? I was still on remand. Uh, so I was on remand for about 18 months all up and, and this is probably six months into it. And I, I was writing a letter to my dad and I wrote, dear dad, you know, happy 56th birthday. And I actually didn't get, I didn't get through the word birthday. I wrote like birthday and then I, I stopped and I thought, oh wow my dad is 62 years old and I wrote 56. I had actually written the, the, the numbers five, six, happy 56th birthday. And then I had the realization that he was 62. And that hit me harder than any punch or bat or anything has ever hit me with before. And that was, it knocked me to the floor and I began to almost convulse. I, I was, my breathing went really shallow. I started to cry. I started to kind of exhibit, uh, great, a great amount of confusion until I searched through my mind that was evidently returning and realized that I was not mistaken and that my dad was actually 56 years old. And the last memory I had of him, he was, sorry, my dad was 62. And the last memory I had of him, he was 56. And right then and there, I realized I had just lost six years of my life. And I was present, not not mentally present, but I was physically present during those times. 
but I was not taking anything in. My brain wasn't absorbing any of it, although evidently it was. It was just kind of putting it to the side if I ever allowed it to, to if I allowed the dust to settle, so to speak. And, and so I searched some more and realized, oh, wow, my, my nephew, what a lovely two-year-old boy, gorgeous kid. I remember picking him up in, in one arm and then all of a sudden I had a, another lightning bolt shock filled with poison that, that said to me, no, Michael, your nephew is six or seven years old now. And again, you know, missed six years of his life. And I just thought, well, this is it. <laughs> I, I was, I would, I would have used any single drug under the sun if I wasn't locked away in a, in a, in a cold cell. And potentially, if I hadn't already made it one attempt on my life and realized that was the wrong thing to do, maybe I would have done it again. And so my first lesson right then and there was this period in someone's journey to sobriety is actually very dangerous. And this, this moment where they have the, but where we have the kind of light bulb moment where we, where, where the dust has settled or beginning to settle and we start to remember our life as it was prior to drugs. Uh, and, you know, people, people, no wonder people kill themselves. No wonder people get back on it and, and, and relapse heavily. And I, I, I was on the floor crying. I was on the floor crying and sobbing and just yelling, please no, you know. I, I mean, my family are very important to me, like everyone. But I, I have this underlying anxiety about when they're going to die, you know. I, I mean, every single day, still to this day, I think about their death dozens and dozens of times. Can't help it. I just think about it and I get scared because I don't want to lose them. And I know I am going to lose them and I haven't come to terms with the fact that death is just for, for all of us. And even though I'm not too scared of dying myself, I, I'm i very scared of losing a family member and, and it, it results in a great amount of suffering for me every single day. And so this was manifesting very intensely because I was faced with the reality of having lost six years of my time with them. And not only just randomly lost six years, but uh, I had... I had lost them as as family members who who knew me because they they viewed me as a monster, an absolute monster. And so I was on the ground and I was thinking about my youngest brother who, you know, him and I shared a very special bond. And by the time I was arrested and detained, uh, he could no longer look at me, literally no longer look at me. And what's worse, what's the worst part, Tim, is that he believed I was something that I'm not he believed I was something I'm not it's like he knew it without a shadow of a doubt he knew no Michael's a psycho he's just yeah he, he was my brother once but we don't really talk he's just insane now all he cares about is violence and drugs and that's what he cares about and he believed that because that's what I taught him to believe and so on the ground in the prison cell no one to turn to and more importantly, no one to blame, except for me, no one to blame. 
and I just wanted to grab hold of either side of my face and rip and just rip my skin off in a, in a hope that I would, I would emerge from that someone else. <laughs> and, um, that didn't work. So I, so I was, I had two options. I literally saw two options. The first one was just give up, just give up. You know, as soon as that cell door opens, just attack the first person I see, get put in segregation for the rest of my life and just allow myself to disintegrate because that's all I deserve. And the other option was to get up and take on what I had caused myself head on, head held high. And it's going to hurt. Oh boy, is it going to hurt. But I didn't want to give up. <laughs> so, yeah, I just decided to get up. And that was the moment that I said to myself, everything you do from here on, you do to further benefit your life. And hopefully, Michael, hopefully, you might be able to pull your head out just a li- just enough to maybe be able to get your family back and maybe be able to help someone else. But first, you've got to help you. And so that was the moment. And after that, my whole world shifted. Everything I, the way I was in, I was in a maximum security prison, but I was no longer getting in trouble in there. I was no longer, you know, doing things that were counterproductive for this new way of living. And yeah, that got me to where I am now, which is, which is not an amazing <laughs> spot, I might say. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, there's so many points that you were talking that I wanted to just like exhale from, oh man, what a journey. God, you know, I've asked this question of a lot of people, but I've probably never been, no, do you know what? I've never been as excited to ask it than I am to you. What excites you about the future? You've done all the hard work. What excites you about the future now? Uh, I, uh, it's hard for me to get excited about the future at the moment because I, I have caused myself a lot of dead ends in terms of uh, progression through life. However, when I'm able to remind myself of the things I've been through and the things that I've conquered internally, you know, mentally, I I get very excited about my future because to be able to have gone through what I've gone through and not only come out the other side, but to, to be able to have the capacity, the mental capacity still to be able to use that, you know, use all the trauma, all the anger, all the sadness, all the tears, to use all the horror that I have both experienced and handed to my family, to use all that to benefit a young person's life to hopefully prevent them going through what I went through or maybe uh, pull them out of what they're going through prematurely before they really start to spiral. That excites me. 
that excites me because what else is there? You know, I, I mean, I, I care about people and I care about the environment and, you know, I don't, I don't think a tree is going to benefit from me telling it my story, but I do think that if I can do it right, express it properly, I do think I can have a really big impact on a lot of people growing up feeling lost, you know, and, and I get excited by that. And to be honest, <laughs> I just get so excited to have my family back, to be able to call my family and not, and not worry about the time of running down, to be able to be able to go see them, you know, that excites me, to be able to know that I'm going to attend my next brother's birthday or my, my next brother's wedding or something, to know that I'm not going to miss any of those anymore. Um, that is exciting to me. That is so exciting to me. And, and, and for my own life, I'm just excited to see where it goes and see what happens in it. And, and to know that each and every setback I experience, I will be able to, whilst it will hurt each setback, I'll still be able to navigate through it and, and continue to move on, you know, that excites me. Everyone has a journey and you've got something so exciting coming up. I don't exactly know what it is. I think it's, it might, well, hopefully it's your book. I know you, you and your mum are writing a book and I can't wait to, to plug that and, and get that into as many hands as possible because it's a journey that needs to, be, need to be heard. I feel privileged. I honestly feel so privileged that you've opened up so much during this, um, during this interview. And I know that you know, a lot of the topics will be hard for people to hear, but it's something that just does need to be hear, heard. And um, no, thank you so much for joining me on The Pathway. Oh, thanks for having me. Honestly, I, I, I do, I really do have no problem with really being raw about what I've been through because I've learned through talking to, to young people already that it's the only way that is, is really going to make a difference. And, uh, you know, so having to really put myself back into certain situations and certain moments of my life so I can uh, appropriately and, and adequately express them in order to make it make a difference uh, is something that, that is becoming easier for me to do. So thanks for, thanks for having me and thanks for showing interest in, in, in my life. That's, it's awesome, man. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends and join me next time on The Pathway.